This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, it's been a while since I've asked you what colour your trousers are. Yeah, all right. Yes, we've got the, we've got the gradation of response from a pina colada at the pool to brown trousers with bicycle clips on. And if I remember correctly, we actually launched this, I think we called it the Omicronometer of Panic, almost exactly a year ago. I think it was uh, right at the end of November. So we're dealing with grandchildren of Omicron these days. How, how are your trousers colour looking? Well, I think, you know, halfway down the slope of the Big Dipper, um, you know, really before it hits. So I would say that my trousers are moving from blue through the spectrum towards brown, but I haven't put the bicycle clips on yet. That's somewhat comforting, I guess. I suppose if, if we learn nothing else from this, it's that we still are here doing Coronacast, a show all about the coronavirus. We are. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor, coming to you from Jagera and Turable Land. I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. And it's been about two or three weeks since we start, first started talking about the fact that we were looking at an uptick. Data from different states kind of came through at different speeds, but it's definitely... On Again, I think we can say with some certainty that the, the COVID wave is picking up again. And so then the real question comes to what do we need to do to slow it down? And I don't know if we really need to be reminded why that's so important. Different states seem to have different approaches to slowing it down now that we're out of the realm of mandates, which is really where we were at the end of last year, beginning of this year. Well, you say states are doing something. Well, there's only one state really doing very much, and that's Queensland, which has gone to amber. And to remind people about the traffic light system, the traffic light system, red is everybody wears indoor masks in every situation. Amber, you wear masks at healthcare settings, indoors if you can't socially distance, which, by the way, are government's raising the white flag about ventilation because social distancing really doesn't matter very much if you have got a poorly ventilated environment and not carrying around CO2 meters. Public transport, in general, if you're at risk, rat testing every two days if you've got somebody positive at home. That's the amber situation. Most other states, they're relying on vaccination. But even with Queensland's traffic light system, it's voluntary. People aren't required to wear masks in those settings. It's just strongly recommended. Yeah and nobody's mandating anything. But if you want to protect yourself and slow this thing down, then it's really important that you follow those sorts of recommendations and that you might indeed, if you're at risk yourself, think about red, where you can't rely on indoor settings to be masked up with an N95 mask. And let me just remind people why we want to slow this down because it's not a benign virus. And I know we say this almost every week. Well, first thing I'll say is about masks. There's been some really interesting studies over the last uh, week or so since we were last on air. A study in Massachusetts schools, Boston schools, which studied before and after mask mandates were rescinded in schools. And, and what they showed clearly, it's not this is not necessarily an argument for masks in schools, but it just shows you the impact of masks, is that when in the 15 weeks after they rescinded the mandate, cases went up in the school situation. Masks do work. And then there's been some big studies over the last uh, week or so on long-term problems with COVID. So there's a 48 million person study from England and Wales, which shows an increased risk of both arterial and venous thrombosis, in other words, blood clots. So if you get an arterial blood clot, that tends to be something like a heart attack or a stroke. 
If you look at venous clots, they can be dangerous too because they can end up in your lungs causing a pulmonary embolism, which is potentially fatal. And what they looked at was the risk level over time following a COVID infection. So what they found was that the risk was very high in the early stages of an arterial thrombosis, that's basically a heart attack or stroke, 21 times the background risk, 33 times the background risk of a venous thrombosis. This is huge. But even out at, I think it was 45 weeks, almost a year out, there was still a 34% increased risk uh, of a heart attack or stroke and a doubling of the risk of a venous thrombosis at a year out. And then there's been this US veteran study, which has been controversial, comparing reinfection to no reinfection, which is showing, uh, and it's of men, it's hard to actually necessarily generalise from that, although the British study helps here, is that they're also showing significantly greater risks with reinfection of long-term problems across all organ systems in the body, and that it's an accumulative risk with each re reinfection. So these are, why, these are reasons why you want to just slow this down so that you minimise these complications. That is really quite worrying when we think about the most of the symptoms that most people get with COVID are relatively mild, but of course this other risk is sort of accumulating in the background. Is COVID unique among viruses in doing this to other parts of your body or is it just that we have studied it so intensely these last couple of years? Well, other viruses can cause other problems directly. They tend not to be complications. They tend to be just part of the infection. So, for example, infectious mononucleosis, the Epstein-Barr virus, glandular fever virus, can cause hepatitis. And there are quite a few viruses that can cause hepatitis in addition to a sore throat and fatigue, for example. Influenza is well known to cause neurological side effects, but not at this rate and not with this profundity in so many people. It is pretty unique. And another study that came out, which is not, not peer-reviewed yet, suggests that in fact, What's happening, what may be happening here, particularly with neurological side effects, is that the immune system is still trapped in, in thinking about the original COVID-19 infection and not adapting well to new variants, and that this is increasing the risk of neurological side effects. It's called immune imprinting. And this is not normal. And the other thing that's not normal, which uh, Professor Eddie Holmes talked about during the week, which is the, just the ability of this virus to go into other animals, come back out again. It, it seems to be able to infect a lot of different animals, whereas influenza, for example, is much more limited in that. So COVID is unusual in this respect. It can cause bad news. And so even though the wave is on the rise, we still have tools within our control to help slow that wave, keep it as low as possible. Individual levels, we know things about masks and that sort of thing, but uh, you're saying that perhaps there's also more that bigger structures like governments could be doing too. Yeah, ventilation, clean indoor air. We've been seeing this ad nauseam. Um, and, and vaccination. So there, again, um, a study from Israel looking at fourth doses, not looking at the protection against severe disease, because that is, is reasonably well maintained after the third dose, but they're looking at the effect of the fourth dose on infection prevention. And what they showed was the infection prevention wasn't too bad in the first few weeks after immunisation tended to disappear after about 16 weeks. And remember, I'm talking about prevention of infection. But that could mean that going with a booster program uh, when you've got a new wave on could slow down the spread of the infection. 
Right. And so even though people still have pretty good protection against severe disease and death from their first, their primary course of the, the vaccine, those first three doses, if we're trying to reduce infection, which is what we were just talking about in terms of slowing down the wave, that could be another tool at, at the population level that governments could consider in the coming years. Yeah. And just to correct the terminology here, I mean, they, they, they still talk about the primary course being the first two and then the third being the booster. But really, the conversation is more about, are your vaccines up to date? We should all have had our third dose if you're over 16. And if you're over 30, you should have had your fourth dose if it's three months since your last infection or immunisation. So one of the things we talked about a few weeks ago was the bivalent boosters, the ones that had some of the original coronavirus in it and then also Omicron 1. And there's just a bit of a correction that we need to make about how we describe that to people. Yeah, this comes from one of our regular correspondents, just correcting a few things from a couple of weeks ago, talking about a small study which showed that when you give the BA5 bivalent vaccine, you're not getting a significantly increased level of antibodies that you would expect compared to the original vaccine. And the point made here is that it was a small study, therefore hard to generalise. I think I implied that Pfizer was the only manufacturer of a BA5 vaccine, although Moderna is too, although the Moderna that's available here is BA1. And finally, they're suggesting that there is evidence that Moderna gives a higher level of antibody response than Pfizer in general. So those are the comments being made there. What's available to us now is Moderna, so we're in good shape at the moment because that's what we're getting. But hopefully in the future, there'll be a BA5 available and hopefully that study was wrong. So... The upshot for people right now is that if they can get their bivalent booster that's available in Australia, that it's still a good idea to get it. It is, because the T-cell response is greater. That's the cellular response, which protects you against severe disease. And you probably do get a little bit of a kick along with the antibodies. And remember, that was a small study. So last week we were talking about rapid antigen tests and the way that maybe they might not be as reliable as we would like them to be. I mean, not many things are as reliable as we'd like them to be. And Sue's got in touch saying that she can confirm that there was a problem with some rats. She was travelling in a group of five people. They were in close proximity to weeks, for weeks. All of them got sick within a few days of each other, but only two tested positive using multiple different brands of rats among the group. She said they had identical symptoms, except one has lost their sense of smell and taste. Norman, what does it mean for us? This this one tool that we actually do have that's quite well available to us seems to be a little bit unreliable. Do we, do we chuck them out altogether? No, we don't chuck them out altogether, but you've got to acknowledge that they're not necessarily reliable. And we're still waiting on the TGA to report of an independent study to see which brands are better or more accurate than others, particularly in this era of subvariants. If you've got symptoms or you've been in contact with somebody, you have to assume that you might be infected too and able to pass it on. So at a minimum, you should be staying away from other people, not going into work and wearing an N95 mask until it becomes clear. I think most of the time with these rat tests, there's a delay in them becoming positive, whereas in times gone by, they were turning positive much earlier. So they're just not reliable in finding out when you're infectious anymore. Right. So very useful to confirm if you've got it, if it does test positive, but even if it doesn't, kind of still acting as if you could be positive in terms of if you've got symptoms. And also, if you've got symptoms, it it might not be COVID, but it could still be something nasty that you don't want to pass on to someone else, like influenza. True. And remember, there's always the option of a PCR test, which your doctor could send you for. 
Hello again. After we finished recording this episode, some jurisdictions made some predictions that maybe this could be a short sweet wave. So we thought we'd come back with a little postscript to today's coronacast. And Norman, I guess the biggest question is that we're hearing authorities say that, yes, we're in a wave, but it's going to be a short wave and not as tall. That is not as higher number of cases or hospital admissions at any one time than we've seen in the past. It certainly would be nice if that was the case. Is it wishful thinking or are they right in saying this wave might not be quite as bad as what we've seen before? Is uh, data from overseas giving us any hints? Well, Future Tegan, if you look at the data, it's possible. Singapore had a smaller peak and it seems to be resolving. If you look at France and look at Germany, they too have had a similar pattern to Singapore. So it's possible that this current wave could be short and sweet. Let's hope that's true because there'll be far less impact on the population. Just got to wait and see. Was that good news from physician and prophet of doom, Dr Norman Swan? Well, that really is all we've got for you this week. We'll see you next time. Vladimir Zelensky is now a household name around the world. You're my hero. But it hasn't always been smooth sailing for the Ukrainian president. Before the war, he was circling the political drain with dismal polls and low public support. Since the invasion, he stepped up and united the West against Russia. He is incredibly good at wartime messaging. Find out how the former comedian turned politician Vladimir Zelensky did it. It's the latest episode of the podcast Russia If You're Listening. Find it on the ABC Listen app.